flaming Calgary's arena deal. This week, Calgary gets positioned as the favorite child of the UCP with a promise for arena funding. Plus, the Edmonton police announced that violent crime is up, but we take a closer look at what that might mean. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 218. We are still in the COVID-conscious recording studio of you're in your house, I'm in my house, we're recording over the internet. But Mac, remember back in the days of yonder when you came over to my house to record in my upstairs room? I remember. It was a long time ago, but I remember. And remember in my 1947 bungalow how stupid hot it got in this room, even though it wasn't really that hot outside? It was a bit of a sauna when we were recording, yeah. Well, Mac, with the sun shining and it's only 14 degrees outside, it's a good 26 degrees in this room. So I am stewing, and that gets us into the perfect mindset to talk about the flames. (laughs) But of course, there are other fire-related puns to get through, and that's the Rapid Fire segment. After actor Will Ferrell showed up to a Los Angeles Kings match with black and white face paint, an Oilers fan photographed with the same design in blue and orange is being called the Edmonton Will Ferrell. When we caught up with the local after the game, he had some unfortunate news for the Oilers. They'd probably be taking last place of all teams in the NHL this year because if you ain't first... A grass fire near St. Albert came within meters of homes before being extinguished on Monday. The cause of the fire hasn't been conclusively determined yet, but Edmonton Fire Rescue is speculating that it could have been Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio. Four African penguins named Hope, Lilluet, Stuvetson, and Salt Spring will be leaving the Vancouver Aquarium next month to live with a larger colony of 17 African penguins in Edmonton. The provincial government is pointing to the transfer as yet another success of the Alberta is Calling program, noting that all walks of life, whether you're a downtown Torontoite who loves Cactus Club or an endangered flightless bird, can find a home in a cheap cookie-cutter house outside the Hende. I heard back from Ryan Barkway, who's acting as Katrin Owen's replacement as communications deputy city manager. And he told me, quote, thank you for your interest in the program. We are aware that the program launch is delayed as we needed to amend our contracts with our external program advisor. The program will be relaunched once administration provides an update to council. We will keep Edmontonians updated as we know more, end quote. Did, did he say anything? <laughs> well, he said some stuff, but I'm not even sure why he said those things. One of the things that jumped out at me is once they provide an update to council, but if it's already approved, why does council need an update? Indeed. Uh, and I did some back of the napkin math. We get agenda updates two weeks before they go to council, released on Thursdays. We're recording Thursday, and it's not on this week's next set of agendas. So we know that from time of recording, It has to be at minimum three weeks from now before that update is provided to council. And of course, council has some breaks scheduled on the calendar and is going on summer break in July. So there's actually a very narrow window left for this to even be provided as an update to council and launch before the year really materially ends for solar install. I'm hugely concerned that administration hasn't managed to do this. And it's not like this is a new program. This is the existing program that they've done for several years and just simply had to add more money to the bucket and reopen the program. Is this a situation where, you know, they're looking at the budget 
it's calendar year 2023. As long as the money is out the door by December 31, you know, they spent it in this year. And those installs just happen later. Obviously, it's not ideal for someone like you who wants the solar right away and like you've been waiting for this. But is that possibly what's happening here? It's certainly possible. But I think at budget, there was a clear expectation given to council, the community and Solar Alberta, who was tweeting about this, that it was happening in 2023. So even if that was the case where they're just moving some budget around and it'll actually be for, you know, real year 2024. I think it's hugely problematic that there's been no communication between either council, the community, or indeed the solar partners in Alberta. There's not that many solar installers in Edmonton and none of them have gotten any sort of heads up whatsoever, to my knowledge. Troy, you mentioned earlier too that those companies are are booking into the winter now, essentially, October. Does that mean you spoke with them? What, what did you learn? Yeah, I mean, so I am trying to get solar panels installed on my house. I went with the company that was able to give me the soonest date, and that was September 17th. There were companies that had quoted me into November, and one of them was even into next year. Uh, They were so swamped with work. Crazy. Well, I notice on the City of Edmonton's website, it currently says that the residential solar rebate program is full and is no longer accepting applicants. Not even an indication that it might be coming back. Yeah, this whole thing as a communications exercise has been hugely lacking. I hope that this is a one-off and it's, you know, administration is going through a tumultuous time, what with OP12 and shifting budgets and even a relatively new city manager in Andre Cobalt. This is his first year within a new four-year budget cycle as city manager. Maybe there's some growing pains going on. I hope so. But if this is intended behavior from a city administration, I have huge concerns about the level of opaqueness with which this is going forward. For sure. So there's no easy way to transition out of this, but let's talk about affordable housing now. Uh, This week, the city and the federal government have announced $66.7 million in a joint investment to repair almost 2,000 affordable housing units in Edmonton. Yeah, there was a couple of announcements. There's that amount of money, which you mentioned, which is for units that are managed by Civita and also by HomeEd. And uh, HomeEd also separately announced that they've acquired some other properties, uh, uh, one called Rundle at Riverview Crossing, which is a 248-unit apartment development in the Northeast in Abbotsford. And that, you know, they'll rent at least half of those units at 20% below market rates. So this is some good news, some progress on additional units of affordable housing, as well as, uh, as you mentioned, that $66 million to repair existing units. So it turns out that, you know, of the Edmonton-owned affordable housing units, like 90% of them or something are in need of repair. About 40%, 376 units are rated as poor condition. So that's pretty concerning. Most of this city-owned social housing stock was built about 45 years ago, and those buildings have sort of a 50-year life expectancy to them. So, you know, if they didn't get repaired soon, they, you know, we might run into some some pretty serious uh, problems. Yeah, and of course, I mean, affordable housing units by their nature and the rental nature are going to have more people coming in and out through them, often families. So, you know, higher quantities of people. But like in my own personal home, Mac, I've lived here eight, nine years. And like, I'm damaging the place. I have to perform material repairs on my house quite frequently. It is 
amazing to me that these affordable housing units have lasted 40, 50 years already. That's, I think, pretty impressive on its own right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of maintenance that goes on already. So for example, in 2021, Edmonton spent just about $10 million of municipal stimulus funding to rehabilitate about 1,500 affordable units in 26 different buildings. So, you know, they've been doing some of this maintenance over time. But this is a a large tranche. And it's important because there's some federal funding uh, here, right, to help us uh, do that. So Ottawa is putting in about 19 and a half million to do this. And the city's putting in 14 million. And then the rest of it comes from the housing unit uh, operators. But you know, the the federal government coming to the table again to help us with this, you know, important infrastructure around affordable housing. You mentioned three partners there, the federal government, the city, and these housing unit operators. I'm noticing a specific absence of the province at the table here. Yeah, I mean, this should be no surprise, of course, that the province uh, is not, you know, at the table here as a partner on this. They've been reluctant to invest in the kinds of housing requirements that the city and council and, and other advocates have been asking for. The provincial government did say that in March, they announced funding for 600 new units of affordable housing province wide. We know that's not nearly enough for the need that exists, and we need more than that just in Edmonton alone, probably. You know, they tried to say that they are putting some money into this, but it's not the same, and it's not, you know, what this funding is, which is the maintenance of existing units, which is always an important consideration, right? It's sometimes it feels like it's easier to get something funded the first time than it is to make sure that it's maintained and and operated over a period of time. Of course, affordable housing is being made a bit of an election topic. We're hearing, especially the Alberta NDP, really coming forward with a plan to build a lot of affordable housing. But like we said in the previous episode, a lot of the electioneering that we've seen so far has been around crime and policing, with the province either funding sheriffs or task forces, getting up and talking about the HELP program. But this week, we got a huge dump of data from the Edmonton Police Service, interestingly timed, saying that uh, violent crime in the city is up substantially. Yeah, they released their 2022 year-end data and had a whole bunch of charts and some additional uh, you know, detail in their, in their news release. This is not a data dump in the way that you might think. There's no spreadsheet here that we can download and play around with. This is uh, Edmonton Police you know, releasing some charts and saying, trust us, this data is accurate. <laughs> so uh, I'll first just give you the the numbers that they, they called out here. So they said that violent crime in Edmonton increased 16.5% last year from about just under 13,000 cases in 2021 to more than 15,000 in 2022. And they said, quote, the highest number of violent criminal incidents ever reported in a single year. End quote. And that's from Sean Tout, who's the executive director of information management and intelligence at EPS. They also broke out some of the data for the downtown, and they gave us a little bit of information about, you know, which kinds of crimes have gone up or down. So for example, sexual assault and kidnapping have decreased, but robbery and what they call level one assault have increased. So there's some concern there. And the police, of course, are using this data release maybe for election purposes, but also because there's this larger national conversation going on with police chiefs and and provincial leaders across the country. And they're arguing that, you know, there needs to be reform to the country's bail system. And, uh, And they have a whole section of the data that supports their argument on that. For our purposes, of course, Troy, I think we're more interested in these numbers in Edmonton. And whether or not they reflect reality and whether or not 
we have some additional context to add to them. And so just on that reality piece, Robin Patches, who's the president of the Oliver Community League, was in the news this week talking about this and saying that the data, you know, doesn't actually reflect the day-to-day experience of most people who live in Oliver, for instance. And then Councillor Ann Stevenson for Ward of Damon uh, was also in the news saying, yeah, we also need to look at the context of the population density here because, you know, the EPS, of course, highlighted downtown as being where a lot of this crime and, and increase of violent crime and everything is happening. And Councillor Stevenson is saying, well, there's a higher population density there. So, you know, we need to take that into consideration. So, Mike, you've said a lot of things. And as you were reading, I kept getting ding, ding. I have a question about this. I have a question about this. I have a question about this. And I think the first thing is violent criminal incidences are up. What exactly is a violent criminal incident? Great question. We don't know. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) If you search for that phrase, violent criminal incident, and you look at edmontonpolice.ca, which you can do in a search engine, it doesn't show up at all. If you do violent (laughs) criminal incidents, like the plural, it shows up just three times, one of which is this news release, and there's no definition in any of those three instances. So, you know, this is one of those questions, like what is a violent criminal incident? How do they define that? For me, this is kind of confusing because I think about robberies in particular. I live downtown. We hear about robberies quite a lot, actually. Are robberies violent or nonviolent? I mean, I'm sure some could be violent. If I'm held at knife point and and robbed, that's violent. But if my car and my parkade gets broken into, which happens a lot in downtown and Oliver, uh, is that considered a violent criminal incident? Because all they say is, robberies. Semantically, I know that the definition of robbery is violent and that if there's no violence, it's burglary. But I don't know that the EPS is making that distinction. Well, there's no burglary in any of these stats. Which is why I suspect. Yeah. 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 I mean, we can surmise from their news release that assault, assault involving bodily harm or a weapon, robbery, whether or not that includes burglaries, harassment, and what they call intimidation of a non-justice participant. What? Which I take to mean intimidation of anyone who's not involved in the justice system, maybe? I don't know. These are the th- these are the categories that are kind of broken out a little bit under violent criminal incident, but we don't really know what that means to answer your question. Perfect. Uh, so already there's a little bit of a sketchy part of that data that... Um... Leads to a little bit of confusion. The other part, um, you said that the EPS broke it out into downtown. And you mentioned Robin Patches, the president of the Oliver Community League. What are we talking about when we're talking about downtown? Because downtown generally means something very different to me than it means to the Edmonton Police Service. When the Edmonton Police Service uses the word downtown, they usually refer to the downtown division, which is actually a bunch of neighborhoods. It's downtown, like the the core part of downtown where we think about the municipal center, but also Central McDougal, Macaulay, Boyle Street, Queen Mary Park, and Oliver. So the neighborhoods that surround, you know, the downtown core and the neighborhoods that you would think about when you think about crime existing visibly on the street, right? That's where there's a lot of, you know, shelters and, and, uh, and tents currently and encampments and things like that. That's a very broad range of neighborhoods, right? Central McDougal and Macaulay and Boyle Street are quite a bit different than Oliver and even downtown for that matter. So when we talk about downtown, you and I usually mean like the central business district, right? The place where the arts district is where ice district is like all this stuff that's kind of right in the in the core and when we when we hear like the downtown business association that's their jurisdiction we talk about investing in downtowns as a municipality that's what we're really thinking about but the police use the same term 
to mean this much broader area. Maybe it's a distinction that isn't that important. I mean, we obviously don't want those areas surrounding the downtown to be unsafe and full of crime either. I'm not suggesting that at all. I just think it's important to know that, you know, when we talk about downtown, these things get conflated. We talk about investing in downtown over here and we talk about crime over here and we're not always talking about the same two areas. That leads me to question number three that I recall hearing when you were telling us about this, and that it was the quote from Sean Toot, the executive director of the EPS Information Management, who said that this was the highest number of violent criminal incidents ever reported in a single year. And Mac, that read to me a lot like Avengers Endgame is the highest grossing movie of all time, (laughs) except when you adjust for inflation, Gone with the Wind completely trounces it in every aspect. So we had talked a couple of weeks ago about the rate being important. Is this actually the highest number of violent criminal incidents in a way that matters? I think it's questionable. So there's two factors here that really jump out at me. So the first is it doesn't seem to take into account the population. Edmonton as a city grows at about 2% per year, our population, if you look at recent years. If that keeps up, then, you know, that 2% per year growth adds up and, and would offset a little bit. And, you know, some of the increases that they're reporting. But the other thing that really jumped out at me from their data is that most of their charts actually show that the peak was a few years ago. So if you look at number of criminal incidents in total, not just the ones that they're defining as this undefined term, violent criminal incidents, just total criminal incidents, 2022 was actually below 2019, 2018, and 2017. Whoa. There was a pandemic dip, and we're going back up from the pandemic dip, but we haven't surpassed the peak of a few years ago, for example. And crime severity was the same. They're talking about how violent you know, crimes are becoming more severe and more violent. But actually, 2022, according to their own data, was the same as 2020 and is below again, 2019, 2018, 2017, and 2016. It was more severe in those years. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, too, because... I heard you say that there was a pandemic dip, and I understand pandemic dips for transit usage and business patronage because, you know, we were stuck in our homes. But the narrative that's pervasive on social media and indeed in press releases is that, you know, after COVID, crime has gotten out of control and it's gotten so much worse through the pandemic. Am I to understand that the actual number of incidents of crimes have decreased during the period marred by COVID? I mean, according to the data that the Edmonton Police Service itself released, yes, uh, the number of criminal incidents uh, decreased from 2019 to 2020. It decreased again in 2021, and it only went up slightly last year, but not back to where it was in 2019. Overall, looking at this, you know, this is, I think, why I tweaked on this term, violent criminal incidents, because the numbers show that crime is kind of going down and uh, or at least hasn't gone back up to where it was pre-pandemic. And also severity is not yet at the point it was uh, pre-pandemic, but violent crime is up. And I have no reason, I suppose, not to believe the Edmonton police, but it's hard to avoid the fact that it's in their best interest to convey that there's a lot more violence now and that we need to put more funding into you know, the, the police in order to combat that. And I'm just not sure that the data, the way that it's defined or not defined, really supports that. And so when the mayor, for example, in response to this this week, says things like, quote, that is why we have increased police funding, end quote, it really gets me a bit annoyed because I think what he's really trying to do here is take the province down a notch, right? Because the 
the current message from council is that the city itself has increased police funding and that the province has actually decreased it uh, over this term. But I think in trying to do that, he actually strengthens a not very strong position for the EPS. And indeed, he strengthens a position that might not be the most robust data-backed position. Uh, It could be that the EPS is presenting data that is, you know, completely true and forthcoming and presents a story that we need to remedy. That could be the case. But like you said, there was no spreadsheet that you could download the data and look at different contexts. There was no robust definitions or anything like that. In terms of data-based decision-making, I don't know that this report provides us enough to say, truly, we are making data-based decisions. Rather, we're making decisions based on an organization that has only received funding increases requesting, hey, look at this chart we presented. It shows we need more funding. And I, I think adding additional strength to the EPS, who, despite council's best efforts, they've never been able to rein in funding, really does not seem to be in council's best interest because the EPS is already very sufficiently strong in terms of budget negotiations. Certainly. I mean, the most successful institution in our city, bar none, at, you know, getting what they need at come budget time and even, you know, else uh, other times of the year, not even just budget time. Yeah, I think the definitions, like you say, the sort of lack of veracity in the in the definitions here is a problem. And, and it's clear that things do change. And so I really you know, good example of that is the downtown boundaries, right? The police service earlier this year announced that they were changing the downtown branch of beat boundary, right? So they've already made changes there. If the definitions change from year to year, it makes a chart that shows stats from one year to the next, you know, look a little less reliable. Yeah, of course, the EPS is always in a very strong bargaining position when it comes to budget time. We've seen that year in year again. But when I think of strength, I tend to think of a big, strong oak tree. You know, that's the metaphorical definition of strength. And yet trees don't seem to have a very strong bargaining position in the city. Indeed, because with Horlock Park rehabilitation coming up, there's probably going to be around 750 trees that get the axe and disappear forever. This is a big change from what we heard previously, right? So we thought previously there was about 220 trees that were thought to be sort of at risk, right? So some of them might be cut down, some of them might be damaged, whatever. Now that at-risk number is, yeah, as you say, almost 750, with 112 that are planned to be cut down and another 85 that are likely to be injured. And then the city in this report that is uh, is coming to council next week or committee next week says that they'll try to preserve the other 544. This seems like a very strange approach to me. We, we know the significance of trees and the, the impact that they can have on, you know, not just quality of life, but in, in reaching our climate redu- uh, emissions reduction goals and all of that, to just knowingly plan to cut down this many trees and have this many at risk seems like a really bad plan to me. You know, I've heard comments that uh, there's a lot of trees in Horlack Park, uh, and indeed there are. It's in the River Valley. There are a lot of trees in the River Valley. But one thing that can't be undersold is that these are mature trees that we're talking about. You can't replace those. You plant a new tree and it takes, you know, 50, 70 years for it to become a mature, strong tree. And I think one of the things that is sort of counterintuitive to me is we're doing these Horlack Park rehabilitations ostensibly to improve services and drainage in Horlack Park. I don't know if you've ever been to Heritage Days after a big heavy rain, but there's a lot of puddles uh, around. But trees are a very effective drainage solution. Sapping up that water 
in a natural way with large root systems really helps avoid erosion and large lakes appearing where they are not meant to appear. So I think we're really hindering ourselves in terms of natural climate solutions by taking down these trees. And even putting all that aside, even if it was a good idea to take down all of these trees, which it might be, there may certainly be a reason to do this. Why has this been so actively bungled? Council was surprised last year at the 220 number, but wasn't really presented with an option to change that plan. And now, just a mere few months later, that number has near tripled. This strikes me as hearkening back to the early roots of this podcast with administration doing things that council is going to have to walk back. Council, of course, wants to plant millions of trees. We talked about the huge budget impact of planting all these trees. Removing 700 trees is not advancing that goal. Especially mature trees, as you as you say, right? And it, it just feels also a little bit like insult to injury because, of course, this Horlack Park rehabilitation project is resulting in the closure of the park to everybody for a number of years. And on top of that, we're now going to lose, you know, hundreds of trees potentially. It just, you know, feels certainly like uh, administration or, or its consultants or both have gone forward with this plan, really just focused on replacing aging infrastructure as if that's the only thing that matters here. And we saw the same thing with the Valley Line development. I don't know if you've ever took the drive or bike up. I believe it's 83rd Street, the one that goes past Bonnie Dune Mall and then weaves up around the traffic circle to go up near Hollywood. Yeah. Before the LRT went in, that was one of the most gorgeous streets in the city. There were these massive mature trees on either side of the admittedly large road. Mm. And it made it feel like even this large road was a nice local street streetscape with a near tree tunnel overlapping on the top and they just tore down every single tree every single tree on that road got chopped down to run an lrt through and sure i'm a big fan of the lrt but everywhere else in the world european cities they build around trees they build around aging natural infrastructure that really enhances the streetscape and i feel like despite us declaring a, a climate emergency and despite us advancing these natural urban canopy goals, one hand doesn't necessarily talk to the other. We have these ambitious goals and then we have the infrastructure implementing it. And our team says, we want one train. Great. Everything else goes out the window to make train go through as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I mean, the argument that I sometimes hear is about, you know, safety and, you know, trees and branches and things falling on the tracks and whatever. But I just think about the Metroline extension that goes north just past 107th Avenue and 105th Street. There is a, a bunch of mature trees right along there. And when the train line was built, they built a little canopy. There's like a little roof over the tracks, uh, you know, to, to help. I suppose, prevent any of that from happening. Like we obviously have done this before. We have some solutions in place. It would have been nice. I agree to keep some of those trees along that line. I think it's no secret from my comments, Mac, that I love trees. I, I love trees a lot. Uh, my favorite type of tree, though, is the money tree down in Calgary, where $330 million falls off to build a new arena. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, $330 million of provincial money. So this is a, a $1.2 billion arena deal that has seemed like it has died many times, but it always comes back to life. I suppose not unlike Edmonton's did early on before we got it built. Um, but the city of Calgary and the Flames and the province have agreed on a new deal. As I said, it includes $330 million of 
provincial funding. They're trying to say, the province and uh, Premier Daniel Smith, that this is not technically to fund the arena, but rather infrastructure around it, like roads and utilities and LRT upgrades, and I think maybe even you know a community rink, not unlike um, what we have in Edmonton, but also at the same time using this as a a bit of an election thing to say, hey, we're making this thing happen, this deal that had been dead for a while. You know, we're we're bringing this back to life, so to speak. Yeah, and we're an Edmonton-based podcast. I don't know that either of us are in the position to say the specifics of each arena plan and how it interacts with the community and whether it's a good or bad thing. But I think what is clear to me and to most watchers from Edmonton is that this seems like a large divergence for the province and for Daniel Smith, who back when Edmonton was having its own arena moment, actively campaigned against funding arena projects. And indeed, Edmonton didn't get provincial funding for our arena. Now, you might argue the CRL is that uh, provincial funding. It's enabled, obviously, by the province for us to have the CRL, but it's really a bit more of an allocation, a reallocation of of tax revenue within the city to this area to fund this, right? So for the province to commit... 330 million for this arena in Calgary, you know, struck me at first as a little bit like, wow, people in Edmonton are not going to be happy about that. And indeed, the mayor, you know, said, well, we're very happy for Calgary. You know, when we built Rogers Place and all of the surrounding development, we asked the province for money and said, and we're told we weren't going to get any. And so now he's kind of saying, if they're getting 330 million, like, what do we get? What do we get in response? And of course, there haven't been a lot of answers to those questions. um, But the premier has said that she has, quote, spoken with a member of Edmonton City Council, unquote, but did not quite say who. Mac, I wonder who it could possibly be. <laughs> yes, but if only there were a couple of councillors that she's been known to speak to uh, before the mayor uh, in recent times. And my money would certainly, of course, be on either Councillor Cartmel or, or Councillor Hamilton. But what Premier Smith did say is that you know, she knows that there's this phase two or stage two of ICE district. So, you know, the arena and, and all the development that's there today, the Stantec Tower and the, the hotel and all of that was this first phase. But uh, ICE district and uh, the Oilers Entertainment Group, they have plans for that land north of the arena, which is mainly, you know, parking lots right now. And, you know, there's a possibility, I suppose, that the province might come to the table to support some of that. And I suppose that could be a good thing, although, you know, this return to Edmonton versus Calgary, hey, he got that, I want that too, doesn't seem like a very healthy thing to me. Yeah, of course, all of this is with the backdrop of the provincial election. As we record this, it is mere days. On Monday, it is expected that the writ of provincial election will drop and the campaign will begin in earnest, as if the campaign wasn't already beginning with Danielle Smith saying, you need to elect me in order to get $330 million for your arena. Um, (laughs) The quiet part was once again said quite loudly. But I think you're right that this puts Edmonton and Calgary in conflict because, you know, he got his, I want to get mine. But of course, all of it's within the context of vote purchasing, I think is the best way to explain this. You know, this arena deal was off the table. It was deemed not to be fiscally prudent. I have to say, Calgary Council was unanimous in approving this secret deal. So there are some question marks uh, for me there. If, for example, someone wants to make a speaking municipally spinoff in Calgary to explain that to me, I would appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) But all of this is to say that Daniel Smith has started the election off with members of Edmonton City Council almost bidding. 
it, it's not a discussion Thursday, April 27th about what's best for the province, what's best for all of the cities and what's for collaboration. It's you gave Calgary 330 million. What can you give Edmonton? Can it be 350 million? Both of which are announcements of Daniel Smith distributing money to make Edmonton and Calgary happy. I don't know that's where we want to be going into this election season. And of course, the city has a communication strategy about ask for Edmonton, ask what the province will do for Edmonton. While it was very tempting, and we saw both the mayor and Councillor Andronak jump on this and say, well, what about mine? I really lament that line of questioning because I think the most prudent question isn't, well, what about mine? The most prudent question is, well, what about what's best for Alberta and what's sustainable for our largest cities? Like, for example, a city charter fiscal framework that the UCP tore up. Yeah, I mean, to his credit, Councillor Knack did say that, you know, municipalities across the province, not just Edmonton, have these massive infrastructure needs. And all of the municipalities have been pretty clear in their advocacy over the last year that the end of MSI funding and the, the new thing that's supposed to replace it, the local government fiscal framework, is insufficient to meet those infrastructure needs. And that these one-offs, like a few hundred million dollars here for an arena, a few hundred million dollars to make up for an Edmonton, are, are unhelpful and, and don't provide the sort of long-term predictable funding that is needed for cities to deal with that. I'll put this in the show notes, but you know, as you were, as you were talking there, it just reminded me of an article uh, that was published a couple of weeks ago by Tim Quarengesser, local Edmonton uh, writer reporter, uh, who uh, wrote a thing for The Walrus called Why Alberta is Bullying Its Cities, and talks about how even though we have two progressive mayors in Edmonton and Calgary, they're being undermined for political gain by the province. And of course, this podcast itself is being undermined for financial gain by Taproot Edmonton. And what better way to augment that financial gain by plugging The Pulse, Taproot's daily news briefing. The Pulse tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. You get short, informative updates about what's going on around the city, and you also get a little bit of whimsy with features like a moment in history. And we've got some new stuff in the works on that too. Uh, So if you uh, are already a Pulse reader, you can look forward to that. And if you're not, it's free. You should sign up. And that's all for this week. If Taproot hasn't fired me from this podcast by next week, then I will see you next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.